Well, if you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumblings of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpist playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. It's a, a beautiful, in many ways, an encouraging passage. There are some aspects of it that also are confusing, which we'll try to unravel as we work our way through it this morning. But as I thought about this passage and how it serves us, I was reminded of the fact that in war, morale for troops is of paramount importance. So if the morale of the troops is low, they're not going to be able to fight the way that they should. So imagine, if you will, a company of soldiers on the eve of war, anxiously waiting the battle, and their commander comes in, and their commander gives them bad news. He tells them that their mission to Mars is doomed to failure, and they are all going to be killed. Now, how do you think those soldiers are going to fight? You know, they're probably going to go into battle with fear and trembling, right? Won't they? But now another group of soldiers, imagine another group of soldiers, and the commander comes in, and the commander gives a completely opposite message. He tells them that the mission is going to be a triumphant success, and he is sure that not one of them is going to be killed. Now, how would this second group of soldiers fight? We trust that they would go into the battle confident, ready. Their morale would be boosted. Now, our passage for study this morning is like that second commander, but it's better than that. You see, it's not the kind of optimistic, positive word of a human person who ultimately doesn't know what's going to happen. This is the sure, morale-boosting word of God, speaking to the people of God, telling them precisely what is going to happen, and it's good news. It tells them that even though they will suffer during the tribulation, they will win. So how does it boost their morale? Well, it shows them a picture of the victory that they will experience. Uh, It shows them that not one of them is going to be lost despite the battle, despite the rage of Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. And it reminds them that they will one day stand on the heavenly Mount Zion with their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it strengthens, particularly those that will go through the tribulation with the fact that the victory is sure, but it does more than just strengthen those believers that are going to go through the tribulation. It strengthens all believers by reminding us that, that these things are true of us as well, that we will likewise share in the victory and the reign that is ours in Christ. We'll see this as we study God's word together this morning. So we're continuing our study of the book of Revelation. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know that we are in the interlude between the blowing of the seventh trumpet, which we saw in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, And really what will be the impact of the blowing of the seventh trumpet, which we'll see in chapters 15 and 16, when the seven bowls of God's judgment are poured out upon the earth, and with them the wrath of God will be completed. End time, final judgment at that point will be completed. And as we've said, in this kind of interlude in chapters 12, 13, and 14, there are several visions. Commentators count them up in different ways, but there's several visions here that instruct and warn and encourage God's people. 
And they have certainly been instructive, but I think it's also fair to say that they've been actually quite scary, even a little unnerving as we've looked at the way that the people of God will face the ancient hostility of Satan. And we thought together about the, the two kind of end times figures, the, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, the antichrist and the false prophet and the ways that they're going to ravage the church at the end of time. And really taking it all in can be a bit overwhelming. It can be a bit to kind of take in all of that. And that's why I'm grateful for this passage this morning, because here a significant shift happens in terms of kind of the, the color, if you will, or the brightness, if you will, of the vision that we're looking at. In this passage, the dark clouds of end-time suffering break apart, and the bright light of eternity just shines in. And we see this vision of the end time. We see this vision of what it will be like to stand with Jesus in glory on the heavenly Mount Zion. And in this vision, we learn that despite their sufferings, believers are going to be victorious with Christ. We're going to emphasize that this morning, the victory that has already been won for us in Jesus and the victory that we will one day fully experience because of Jesus. Actually, as we'll see next week, and I trust the week after, all the visions of Revelation 14 for the believer, for those who are trusting in Christ, ultimately they're quite encouraging. They point us to the goodness and sovereignty of our God. So we're studying this passage, verses 1 to 5, this morning using three points if you're taking notes. The first point is going to be the vision of the 144,000. We'll see that in verse 1 of chapter 14. The second point is the song of the 144,000. We'll see that when we look at verses 2 and 3. And then the third point is the description of the 144,000. We'll see that in verses 4 and 5. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me if you will, or look if you will at verse 1. And to see this first point, the vision of the 144,000. So as we said in Revelation 12 and 13, the visions we've seen have been really somewhat terrifying. Uh, as we've looked at the dragon, as we looked at Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. But here again, we see the scenery completely changes. We go from darkness to light. We go from defeat to triumph. We go from death to eternal victory. So look at verse 1. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their Forehead. So what does John see? He looks up at that point. What does he see? He sees the Lamb, that's Jesus, in all of his glory. And with him, he once again sees the 144,000. Now, as you recalled, when we studied Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, uh, many Christians believe that the 144,000 refers to a, a literal group of individuals who will be alive at the end of the age. They'll be servants of God. They'll be Jewish. Uh, they'll probably be evangelists that will be at work serving God during the tribulation. And again, that is certainly an orthodox interpretation of that passage in chapter 7 and an orthodox understanding of the 144,000. But as I explained then, I understand the 144,000 to be symbolic for the church, uh, for the people of God, both Jews and Gentiles, who will go through the tribulation at the end of time. But do you notice that they will go through the tribulation? You notice that? Uh, many believers are going to die during the tribulation. That's what chapter 12 and 13 make so abundantly clear. Many who follow Jesus are going to be killed during the tribulation. And yet what's also clear here is that even those who die in the tribulation, they make it through because their souls are safe with God. Why do they come safely through? Ultimately, it's because they belong to God. And that's what you see at the end of verse 1. Look at the end of verse 1 where the 144,000 had Jesus' name and his father's name written on their 
foreheads. It's this symbol of belonging. It's more than that. As we will say later, it's also a symbol of protection. Let's dive a bit deeper into verse 1 by asking two questions. And the first question is this. What does it mean when John says the Lamb and the 144,000 are standing upon Mount Zion? What does that refer to? Well, throughout the scripture, Mount Zion is another name for the city of Jerusalem, right? And so those that would interpret this vision uh, more literally would understand Mount Zion there to refer to the actual city of Jerusalem, uh, the earthly city of Jerusalem. But they would say that this is after Christ has returned. He has defeated the false prophet and the Antichrist. He has bound Satan. And now this vision is literally a vision of the 144,000, kind of those Jewish evangelists, standing with Jesus in victory in this earthly city. And again, that is a possible interpretation of this passage. However, I do not think that Mount Zion here is speaking of the earthly city of Jerusalem. I believe it's speaking of the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, the place, this place of glory, we call it heaven that we read about earlier from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. In other words, in verse 1, John is seeing a vision of heaven, and he's seeing the saints glorified with Jesus in heaven. Now, why do I believe that Mount Zion here is referring not to the earthly kind of city of Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, is because of verse 3. In verse 3, you notice where the 144,000 are. They are standing before the four living creatures, before the throne, and the elders. Now, we've seen that location before. This is the throne room of heaven. We saw that back in chapter 4. This is the throne room of heaven. And so heaven, again, is the setting for this vision. So what does it mean? Well, it means we need to be careful about how literally we interpret this passage. That's always the challenge as we look from vision to vision. How literally do we interpret this? And with respect for those who differ, I do not believe it pictures the triumph of 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will be reigning with Jesus in an earthly millennial city at the end of time after safely coming through the tribulation. It's possible, but I don't think that's what it's teaching. Instead, I believe it pictures the church. Both Jews and Gentiles, the people of God, they've now come through the tribulation, and now they're standing with Christ in heaven. And what does it demonstrate? It demonstrates that our God is faithful to his people. It shows that our God is faithful to his people. Even though Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet will do their worst, God has sealed his people for their protection. So even though many believers will be martyred during the tribulation. When you put chapter 7 and chapter 14 together, you see that 144,000 go into the tribulation, and you see that 144,000 come out of the tribulation, and it is a picture of the fact that God is faithful to his people. The point of this vision is that not one is lost. God will keep all of his people safe from ultimate harm. And that is a wonderful, comforting reality. Another question, what does it mean that they have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads? Now, we discussed this when we looked at chapter 7 as well, because in chapter 7, verse 3, we, we see the sealing of the 144,000. And then when we studied chapter 7, we pointed to this passage in chapter 14, and we said that this actually is what the seal is. It's the name of Jesus, and it's the name of his father that is placed by God on their foreheads. I do believe we should understand that to be symbolically not literally on their foreheads, but symbolically showing that God has sealed them much in the way that all of us have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. It shows that we belong to God. But I do want to bring out in this passage the strong contrast there is 
between what we saw last week and what did we see last week? Well, we saw the mark of the beast. And now this week, what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing the seal of God placed upon the foreheads of his people. There is a contrast here. So last week in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 13, we saw that the false prophet will force all the inhabitants of the earth, uh, all who are then alive, he will compel them to receive a mark. That's the infamous mark of the beast. Those who receive that mark, they demonstrate that they're loyal to the Antichrist. Uh, they also have privileges in his kingdom. They're able to buy and sell, and only those who have the mark are able to do that. And really, that mark shows that they belong to the Antichrist. But now in chapter 14 and verse 1, we see that God also has a mark, if you will. It's a seal, actually. Uh, it's a, a seal. It's different than the mark. It's not just a stamp. It's not just a brand, but it's a seal, kind of like the seal that you would see on a scroll. It's a seal that shows ownership, yes, but not just ownership. But just as a seal on a scroll kind of protects the contents of the scroll, so the seal that God places on his people demonstrates that he will protect his people as well. And that's significant because the Antichrist has a mark that shows who belongs to him, and yet the Antichrist will not be able to protect his followers. We're going to see that next week when we continue to study chapter 14. In verse 11, God promises that those who receive the Antichrist mark will suffer God's wrath forever and ever. But in verse 1, we see that God's seal, it accomplishes two things. It demonstrates who belongs to God, and it also shows that they will be protected from ultimate harm. So while Satan and his Antichrist will be able to physically kill believers at the end of time, they won't ultimately be able to harm them because their souls will be safe with God. And that is true of us as well. And so verse 1 is ultimately a very comforting picture of the power of our God and the faithfulness of our God who keeps his people even through the tribulation. Now let's make two observations from this before we move on. The first is that the, the destiny of all believers is victory. And that's important because in this life we often feel defeated. Isn't that true? That we often feel defeated, besetting sins like anger and pride and lust rear their ugly heads in our lives. Uh, soul change, heart change, growth in Christ, it feels so painfully slow, and we wonder why we keep having to learn the same lessons over and over, and why our hearts aren't more like Jesus after so many years. Unforeseen trials can absolutely stagger us. Broken relationships among brothers and sisters in the church can sour and fester, and over time make life together in the body difficult. And then there's that grind of life in a fallen world that just wears us down over time. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, you just kind of feel the weight of the world more and more and more. And spiritually, we feel weary. And all along the way, we have the enemy, Satan, whispering in our ears all the time that we're failures, that we're not enough, that God is dissatisfied with us. And that's why we need this vision. That's really, that's really why we need this vision in verse 1. You see, it reminds us of the reality that in Christ, those who belong to him, they overcome they are victorious. Uh, so the future for us isn't endless grind and struggle and limp. The future for us is victory. Uh, the future for all who belong to Jesus is exceedingly bright. I think that's important for you to know this morning if you're struggling. If you belong to Jesus, the future for you is exceedingly bright. I think it's important for, the, for those of us that are more senior saints who feel like, well, maybe this life is coming to an end. The future for you, brother or sister, is exceedingly bright. 
You have endless ages ahead of you where you'll be able to serve Jesus with all your heart forever and ever and ever. Now, the struggle, the dark struggle even of this day will one day give way to the light of endless eternity. And that's what you see in verse 1. Why can we be confident of this? Because Jesus is the captain of our salvation and he has already won the victory. He won the victory at the cross and we will see and experience the fullness of that victory one day. So what does that mean for us? It means we should, by God's grace, live like those who in Christ will be victorious. We should live that way. That should impact the way we think, and it should impact the way we live, and it should impact the way that we dialogue with our emotions so that we're not continually overwhelmed by our emotions, but we're speaking back to our emotions. We're telling them, I don't know why my soul is cast down today, but I can hope in God because Jesus overcame, and in him I'm going to overcome, and we can continue to press forward. So we don't have to be marked by grumbling and complaining. Right? What a wonderful sin to fight against. We think of it as a small thing. It's not. It's saying that everything God's given me today is not enough. Uh, we all sin in this way. We all need to repent of this. We have every reason to repent of this because in Christ, the victory is ours and we can live like it. Uh, we do not, again, have to let our emotional fluctuations dominate our lives. We do not have to be victims of our emotions, laying down before them at all times. No, why? Because the victory is ours, which means that we can fight and we can fight bravely. Right? Just like that second group of soldiers that marches into battle triumphantly, we can fight bravely. Why? Because we know the end of the story. We know the victory is ours. And so we can fight. John Newton put it this way. He said, we are engaged in a good cause. Fight under a good captain. The victory is sure beforehand, and the prize is a crown, a crown of eternal life. Such considerations might make even a coward bold. And to that I say, amen. There's a second observation. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who belong to Satan and those who belong to God. Now, the day is coming when that's going to be very, very clear. What you see here in the ceiling of these 144,000, those who had the name of God, of Jesus and the Father on their foreheads, is that they very clearly belong to God. God knows who belongs to him. But as we said last week, when we studied chapter 13, the day is coming when the Antichrist will mark all of humanity in such a way as it will be very visible who belongs to him and who does not belong to him. In those days, it's going to be very clear that there are only two kinds of people, those who belong to Satan and those who belong to God. But that's the reality now. There's not a third kind of person. In other words, there's no class of people that are neutral towards God. God is the king. You're either living your life under his authority or you're not. There is no third place. There is no place of neutrality. The Bible is so clear about this. The Bible says there are only two ways to live. Uh, there are only two paths you can walk on. You can walk on the broad and easy path. Most people in the world are on that path. Uh, it's the way that feels comfortable because it aligns with the nature we were born with, kind of this sinful nature that is focused on serving self. And so we live this life looking for as much happiness as possible. But Jesus says that broad and easy way ends in destruction. But then there's a narrow way that's difficult. It requires you to lay down your life as a sacrifice and follow Jesus. Uh, it's described as constricted. It's a hard path. 
But Jesus says it leads to life. And every single person in the world is on one of those two paths. And everyone in this room this morning is on one of those two paths. It's the path of following Jesus, or it's the path of ultimately, whether you understand it to be this way or not, following Satan and living his way and pursuing what he would have you pursue. So my question, friend, is who are you living for? Who do you belong to? So many people in our age think that they are living for themselves. They're setting their own course. They're building their own identity. They're pursuing their own dreams. But ultimately, they're just being led astray by Satan to destruction. That's what the Bible actually teaches. That's the, that's the hard reality of the Bible. You see, we can't soften this because we love you and because we don't want you to perish. Uh, the Bible teaches that we were not born okay with God. All of us, all of pastor, all of us. We were born separated from God. And so from birth, we didn't belong to God. Uh, actually, we were born sinful. And, and so our desires, as I said a minute ago, was just to live for ourselves and to pursue our own way and to build our own dreams and, and live out our own life and, and define our own identity. And that's what we have all done in countless different ways. Instead of living under the good and life-giving kingship of God, we have lived as if we are the king of our lives, that we can make our own decision. We can do what we want to do when we want to do it. And the Bible says that that actually, while it feels like freedom, it's actually treason against the true God, the God who created us and who sustains us moment by moment. And I think that's important to understand. Everything we have received, we have received from God. Every moment we exist, we exist because God is permitting us to exist. And for us to take all of his good gifts with no gratitude and instead live for ourselves is not a neutral act. It is an act of hostility against the God who loves us and created us. And the Bible says it's serious. And the Bible says all who continue to live that way, who do not turn from that sin and put their hope in a Savior and praise God there's a Savior, they will face the judgment of God. But then that brings in the good news. And the good news is that there's a way to belong to God. Uh, it's through Jesus. God the Father sent his son into the world. The eternal son of God became a man. He lived a perfect life. You can read about it in the gospels. You can read his perfect words. You can read his mighty power in terms of miracles. You can read the fact that he predicted his own death and resurrection and then accomplished his resurrection after they put him to death. Why did Jesus come to live? He lived because you and I lack righteousness, because we're not good enough for God, but he was good enough. And he came to be a sacrifice and a substitute. And then he laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice and a substitute, bearing in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. And then he did what he promised. He rose from the dead. And that's what makes Christianity not a philosophy. Christianity is ultimately a person, a person who lived in space and time. His name is Jesus. He's the one who accomplished salvation. And now he says this this morning, if you will turn from your sin and from living for yourself and instead put your trust wholly in Christ and what he has done on the cross, God will save you. Amen. Save you from your sin. Save you from the, the wrath that you've deserved. And friend, it's not just you. The wrath that I deserve because of my sin as well. And even today, if you will trust in Christ alone, he will welcome you as a son or a daughter. 
He will welcome you into his kingdom. You will belong to him. And this vision in, in verse 1 will belong to you as well. You will be like this 144,000 who will passly say through all the trials and troubles, and you will be with God forever and ever and ever. There is no better message. There is no better news. And best of all, it's true. It's true. So we urge you to put your trust in Christ this morning, to belong to him through Christ. There's a second point this morning that we want to see in this passage. We want to see the song of the 144,000. Look at verse 2 and 3. I heard a sound from heaven, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So in verse 2, uh, John hears a sound. So it's a mighty sound, right? Like cascading waters and loud thunder. That's the idea. It's this deafening roar, if you will. But do you notice that it's also a joyful sound? Uh, the sound of harps giving praise to God. Harpists playing on their harps and commentators, well, they disagree about uh, where the sound is coming from, who's creating the sound, something that this is the sound of a heavenly host of angels that are praising God and even teaching these 144,000 a, a song. But I don't think so. In verse 3, I think we should understand, or in light of verse 3, I think we should understand that this sound from heaven is the new song. It, it is the, the voice of these 144,000 who've been redeemed from the earth, now crying out in praise to their Redeemer, the one who has saved them. And notice that they are able to do this, and they alone are able to sing this new song. What kind of song is it? It's a song of redemption. It's a song of salvation, the salvation they've received in Christ. They alone can sing the song. Why? Well, in contrast to the holy angels who don't know what it is to be saved, the 144,000 do know what it is to be saved, and they are enabled to sing about the redemption that they have experienced from sin and death and hell. And so verse 2 and 3, it's a picture of redeemed saints that are singing joyfully to the Lord. Why? Because the battle has been one. It's like Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus 15 singing songs of praise because they have been brought out of slavery in Egypt. It's that kind of song. This shows us that Christians can glorify God in a way that even the holy angels cannot. You know, it'd be a tremendous thing, I think, to be a holy angel, right? Someone like Michael or Gabriel, right? Since creation, holy angels have witnessed all that God has done. Uh, they were there at the beginning. They're singing forth uh, as God is creating all things. They've beheld the glory of God. They praised him continually. Uh, they've witnessed the destruction of Eden because of the fall of Satan. But they've also witnessed Jesus' victory on the cross. And all throughout it, the Lord has used them and given them commands. And they've always, with a full heart, obeyed those commands, even helping Christians as we struggle towards eternal life which is what angels do, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. But for all the holy angels can do, there's one thing they can't do. They cannot praise God for their salvation. Why? Because you have to have been lost to be found. And you have to have been blind in order to see. And you have to have been spiritually dead in order to be brought to spiritual life. And the angels have never sinned, so they don't know what it is to be saved. So in the words of verse 3, they can't learn this new song, the song of redemption, because they haven't experienced the reality of salvation. But we can. But we can. 
this verse, this passage gives us an opportunity to join in, if you will. Those of us that have been rescued from sin, we have this unique opportunity to glorify God. We can spend our lives praising God for the salvation that we've received, and we can spend our lives sharing that salvation with others so that they might also come to know Christ and enter into this glorious salvation. And even better, we will spend all eternity praising God for the greatness of the salvation that we have received in Christ. So the application is clear. Like the 144,000, we also know what it is to be redeemed from our sins. And so we can join in singing a new song. We can join in singing and praising God for the redemption that is ours in Christ. In other words, our life should be one of continual praise to God. That should mark us as those who follow Jesus. Uh, and that should actually look like singing. It, it really does include singing. We should sing songs of praise to God, and, and not just on Sunday. Ryan Lowe reminded us of this when he preached for us recently during one of our corporate prayer services, that we should be singing throughout the week so that our hearts are prepared to sing well together when we gather together, so that our hearts will be warm to praise God when we gather together on Sunday. But it should also include a life of worship where we do all that we do as an act of worship to God. And that actually is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Uh, there's no compartment of our lives that we're supposed to keep back to ourselves and say, this is for me, and God, you can have the rest of it. No, what does the Bible say? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. Well, that's the song. The final point, the description of the 144,000. Look at verse 4 and 5. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they have remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, as you can tell, verses 4 and 5 contain a description of the 144,000. And those that would take a more literal understanding of this verse, they will, in terms of the commentators, they will often spend time talking about the moral virtue of these 144,000 men. One well-known pastor spoke of the 144,000 this way. He said, The opening verses of Revelation 14 introduce the most triumphant group of men the world will ever know. Scripture describes other faithful, godly, uncompromising men, such as Joseph, Daniel, and Paul, but never will there be such a large group at one time. They will emerge from the worst holocaust in history, the tribulation, battle-weary but triumphant, they will be like 144,000 Daniels. But while I don't think we should understand the 144,000 to be literally 144,000 Jewish male evangelists, so I don't think we should understand this description of the 144,000 to be a literal uh, listing of the virtues of morally superior individuals who will live at the end of time, 144,000 Daniels. I think what we're seeing here in this description of the 144,000 is how God views his church. That's what I think we're seeing here. And in particular, those believers who will have weathered the storm of the tribulation and now have entered into the presence of God and his glory. This is how God looks at his people. And what an encouraging thing. What an amazing thing to think that God will look at us like this. Uh, really, really, the 144,000 here are pictured as the promised bride of Christ who's kept itself pure 
from the Antichrist and from the Antichrist system and is now awaiting the day of the wedding of the Lamb. Well, in these verses, we see that God views his people as morally pure, as loyal, as dedicated, and blameless. Let's look at this one at a time. Look at the first part of verse 4. You see that the 144,000 are morally pure. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they are virgins. Now, if I was a woman, which I'm not, nor can I ever be, I would be tempted to be a bit offended by this verse. Is the Bible saying that somehow men are morally superior to women? And is the Bible saying somehow that it's better for men to be in a celibate state than to be married? And the answer to that is no. Actually, the Bible teaches that men and women are equal in dignity and worth before God. And the Bible teaches that marriage and being single for Christ, both of those are gifts of God, and they are equally valuable according to God as God gifts each individual. So what does the first part of verse 4 refer to? Well, often the Bible speaks of spiritual idolatry in the terms of sexual immorality. I think that's what's going on here. The book of Revelation specifically speaks of the Antichrist, his, his religious and economic system in terms of prostitution. And so I think what's being done here is that these 144,000, when they're described as virgins, John is saying that the church will keep itself morally pure during the tribulation and unstained by participation in the beast's system, its evil system. Now, that's a really good reminder for us as well, because we likewise live in an evil age, and we're called to be morally pure. And we're called to be set apart from the idolatry of our age, and the idolatry of our age is absolutely rampant. In other words, we are to pursue a life of holiness in a world that's marked by idolatry. We're to be like Jesus. That's what it means. That God truly cares whether in in our heart of hearts we're like Jesus. That God truly cares that we would be the same person in the light when all can see us as we are in the dark when only God can see us. He truly cares that we would walk closely with him. That matters to him. Because Jesus did not die to create an unholy people, but he died to create a holy people, a people who would be like him. I love what the 19th century Scottish Presbyterian minister, Robert Murray McShane, said, how he urged his people to pursue holiness. He said, do not forget the culture or cultivation of the inner man. I mean of the heart. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. It's a call for us, brothers and sisters, to take it seriously. And just to make it practical, it matters what we put before our eyes. And it matters what we listen to. And it matters how we speak to one another. And it matters that we forgive. And it matters that we're not bitter. All of these things matter. And so by God's grace, we fight. And we repent. And when we fail, we get back up because the gospel frees us to get back up. And we keep marching towards heaven. And may God help us do it. 
Second, the 144,000 are loyal. Look at the second part of verse 4. It says, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were the ones that were loyal to Jesus during the tribulation. They followed him wherever he went, even when he led them to martyrdom. They followed him. And now they follow him forever in heaven. In the same way, we are those who are called to be loyal to Jesus in this life. So not siding with the world with its seductive philosophies. And it, they are seductive. Uh, not siding with the world and pursuing the fleeting pleasures. And the world offers pleasures. But they're fleeting pleasures. That's the difference. But instead, to daily choose to follow Jesus wherever he may call us to go. And that is the most basic command of discipleship. That's what Jesus says. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and what? Follow me. Third, the 144,000 are dedicated. Look at the end of verse 4. They were redeemed from humanity as the firstfruits of God and the Lamb. You know, in the scripture, that word firstfruit, it refers to really the first part of the crop. It comes up first. And it's really the guarantee that the rest of the crop is on its way, that it will follow. And in ancient cultures, often those first fruits were offered to the gods as a way of unlocking the rest of the crop. And I think that's really the idea that John is getting at here. You see, the 144,000 had been redeemed out of humanity. That is, they had been saved by Jesus to have a special relationship with God. They had God's salvation through Christ, and so they resist the pull of the world, and they instead offer their lives as a living sacrifice to Jesus. They're dedicated to Him. They're following after Him wholly. They're giving themselves to the service of God. And that total dedication continues now for all eternity. But you know, it occurs to me, as we strive for that, and I trust by God's grace we're striving for that, that is a daily decision. You know, this idea of I'm going to dedicate myself as a sacrifice isn't something that I can do one time in the Christian life. It's something that requires that I would daily come before the Lord and I would submit my will to His will. And I would learn that this most basic principle, this most basic way of living is to say this, not my will, but your will be done today. And that's very practical. It looks like spending time with Jesus each day. It looks like making time to read the Bible, not to earn points with God, because we can't earn points with God. We've been given perfect righteousness through Jesus. But we spend time with God in his word. Why? Because that's how God gives us himself. These are the means of grace. And so I spend time with my heavenly father, and I know that he will minister to me by his spirit as I do so. And I pray and I talk with him and I commune with him. Why? Because it's a relationship. And this should be a day-by-day -day thing where we are walking with God. And it should be a day-by-day -day thing where we are dedicating our lives to Him for that day. You know, even for the next moment. And it would not be my will, but it would be His will that would be done. Fourth, the 144,000 are blameless. Look at verse 5. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, this speaks of the matchless grace of God. A grace that both saves us and a grace that makes us like Jesus. You know, the Christians who will endure the tribulation, they're not different than us. They're going to be sinful just as we are sinful. But because of Jesus, they will be blameless in God's eyes. Even as they struggle out their life, they will be blameless in God's eyes because of Jesus. And they will be blameless in God's eyes for all eternity because Christ has atoned for all of their sin and because Christ's righteousness has been given to them as a free gift of grace. And I hope that that encourages us. As we live our lives, we want to be blameless, right? 
Uh, we do want to be the kind of people that when we, when we speak, there's no lie, right? That it's wholly true, that there's real integrity there. Uh, we want to be marked by this perfect holiness. That, that's, really, that's really evidence that you're born again, that you have that desire. And when you don't have that desire, you have the desire to have the desire. You, you want to want to follow Jesus, even when you're struggling. It's just a sign that, that you've been changed by the gospel. We want that. And yet, the reality is that we struggle. And I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of that this is a fight, and it's a fight from beginning to end. It will be a fight all the way until we see Christ face to face. At times, our words are less than fully true, right? We can kind of cleverly shade the truth to kind of make ourselves look a little better than we deserve to look. True? It's true. Some of you agreeing with that? By God's grace, we can grow in Christ's likeness through our lives. Praise God, right? At times, our actions are less than wholly blameless. True or false? It's less than wholly blameless. That's true. And yet, here's the wonder of the gospel, and it's free, is that right now, if you're in Christ, you're blameless in God's eyes. He doesn't see a spot on you because Jesus has covered you with his righteousness, and all of your sins have been paid for. And so that's the standing from which we get to live our lives is I am accepted in Christ and now I get to live like who I am and who am I? I am blameless in Christ, so I want to live a blameless life and the Holy Spirit of God is at work in me, helping me even as I struggle, turn away from sin so that I can pursue Jesus and be more like him. And that is how we live the Christian life. So we can press on. We can press on. Uh, we have hope, right? I mean, just like these 144,000 who will endure the tribulation, we also will reach the farther shore of heaven. Jesus will be faithful to all of his promises, and we can serve him. We are blameless in Christ now. We'll be perfectly blameless for all eternity. I hope, Christ Fellowship, that you're encouraged by this passage. I hope that you have this sense of what a wonderful thing it is to be a follower of Jesus, right? You come out of the, the darkness of chapter 12 and 13, and, and it's, it's scary. It's kind of overwhelming. And then you get to chapter 14, and you see who wins. Christ wins. And we win with him. And for eternal ages, we will participate in that glorious victory. This passage is like that military commander that assures his troop of victory. It boosts our morale so we can keep pressing on. May we keep pressing on. Let's pray.